Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Hey, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. This is the third episode in a four or maybe even five part series on artificial intelligence and what it means for our future. We started out with a conversation with Cade Metz, tracking the history of the latest developments in AI and the people behind it. Then we spoke to Jeff Hawkins who invented the Palm Pilot, and also a new theory of the brain called A Thousand Brains, looking into how the architecture of the neocortex supports neural networks and mental models, and how that theory can be used to develop even more effective artificial intelligence. This week, we're going to talk to Jamie Marisotis about what humans should be doing in the age of smart machines. What kind of work is going to be left for us? Or more importantly, what kind of work do we want to do since, after all, we are the ones who are creating the machines. His most recent book is called Human Work in the Age of Smart Machines. Jimmy Marisotis is the CEO of Lumina Foundation, which is an independent, private foundation committed to making opportunities for learning beyond high school available to all. That's going to be important, as we have to re-educate the workforce as machine learning takes over many of the jobs that we hold dear. But is that really true? Or are machines just going to do the things that we actually don't really want to do? And what does that leave us time to do instead? Jamie Marisotis, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks very much. Great to be with you. The pandemic, of course, has changed so much about how we work. And it's also given us an opportunity to think about what's important and what we want to do. And I don't think I'm alone in finding that I'm actually working more during the pandemic on things that, you know, I, I would have given less time to because I don't have to commute and I'm not doing events and I'm not doing as much travel. But I've also noticed that if I didn't have work, I think I would be a lot more depressed. <laughs> Do you, I mean, is that something that you're you're noticing as well, that somehow one of the things that we've noticed in the pandemic is how important work is to just our mental health? Yeah, it's a great point. And I think the pandemic has accented this, this point. So, you know, we, as humans, we have this desire for meaning. Uh, meaning is something that we get out of work. And I think the pandemic has helped bring that out. You know, everybody works 
for one reason, which is that they need to make money. They need to have a job. But people work because they want meaning. They want social mobility. They want dignity. They want outcomes. And I think COVID has sort of brought that to the fore. People lost jobs and they lost that dignity. They lost that meaning. And for the people who have been able to continue, I think there's a sort of of a re-understanding of how important uh, work is. In fact, you know, underscoring this point about meaning, Gallup has done these surveys for years about uh, workers. And one of the things they've shown over years is that even for the lowest wage workers, the people in the bottom quintile of incomes, they will give up some money for meaning. So in other words, they are willing to say, yes, I'll give up some of my money if I know that my job makes a difference. I mean, I'm an academic, so I know exactly how that works. Uh, we definitely don't make a lot of money. I mean, we're, do, we're doing fine. But, you know, there is definitely a a cost for having a job in which I'm sort of what we say paid to think, you know, and that and that's really appealing to me. Um, and I feel very fortunate to be able to do that. But I also think that... Um, you know, when when everything sort of has, has changed so much during the pandemic, you know, I, I wonder whether people are really rethinking why they work, just as you said. I mean, we generally think we work to make money and the more money we get offered, you know, is the more motivated we are to work. But that doesn't seem to be, you know, universally true. Can you tell us a little bit about what people have found you know, in terms of understanding this relationship, um, because sometimes, you know, getting paid for something actually devalues it as you no longer feel intrinsically motivated to do that work. Yeah, you know, there's an interesting debate here, right, about AI and machines and automation and what they do and humans and what we do when it come, comes to work. And, you know, I think increasingly we're understanding that AI is not really about the robot zombie apocalypse. It's really more about better understanding what we get out of work and why work really makes a difference for us. You know, so my view is that, you know, on the one hand, te technology is advancing. Technology has always, in the uh, final analysis, created more jobs than it's destroyed. And I think that will likely be true in the era of AI. But in this human work era that I think we are rapidly entering, we're going to need to understand this concept of human-machine complementarity. In other words, that what humans are good at is complementary to what machines can do and vice versa, because we know what the machines can do, right? They're good at speed, pattern, repetition, algorithm. But you know what we know as humans is that machines can't understand subtlety and nuance and how people react to each other. And so as workers, you and I as workers, I think the more we interact with each other, the more we realize that we are human workers and, and we desire to have that interaction as part of, of, of what we do. And, um, you know, that's why, you know, I, I have written about this idea that at the end of the day, you know, we're different than machines in a lot of ways. But the most important is that for us, work matters to us. It really does matter. And if we can't work, um, we don't feel satisfied. And if our work is not um, leading to outcomes that we care about, we aren't happy. So, you know, again, it, the, the the money part and the social mobility part is really important. But this these ideas around satisfaction and meaning and dignity and purpose are hugely important to us as workers. 
And so let's say we do fast forward a little bit in the future and AI has you know, really become, I mean, it's, it's already a big part of our lives, but even more so such that we almost get to a point where humans no longer have to work. <laughs> um, they only work because they want to. I mean, this is this is probably, this is utopic, right? This is probably never going to be the case. But in that kind of a scenario, what do you think the humans would want to do, even if machines could do it? Because I think there's an argument that some people say, well, you know, machines can never do things like show compassion. Um, probably not. <laughs> but, you know, there are also these robots that, you know, can hug you. And so there's the there's the sense maybe that we can project compassion onto an AI. So but but even if they could show compassion, we probably wouldn't want to give up compassion as something that is brings meaning to us. So can you tell us a little bit about what you think humans will continue to want to do even if AI was able to do it? Yeah, I think um, humans do do want uh, to work in contexts where things like compassion and empathy are, are part of, of what they what they do. We also love to collaborate. We're very good at collaboration. I'm not sure about the science around um, machine collaboration, but my, my sense is that collaboration where you do understand that subtlety and that nuance and that difference that comes from human interaction is, is really important. Um, you know, a, a big thing about what we will want to be doing in the future, I think, is making ethical decisions. I don't think we should leave that uh, to the machines. So I've been um, I've been in some um, self-driving test vehicles and talked with some of the people who designed the technology. And the hard questions around the self-driving vehicles have to do with the question about the ethics of the decision making that goes into, you know, the 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 vehicle is driving down the street. And, you know, are you going to hit the pedestrian uh, pushing the baby cart? Or are you going to hit the pedestrian, you know, with with the uh, the cane? Like, you know, those ethical decisions that we have to make as human as humans, I think, are really important. And as workers, our work will increasingly require us to focus on those ethics, on those issues about um, human interaction and, and those kinds of things. So. I think I think there will be plenty of work for humans, by the way, uh, in the future. I, I think that there are lots and lots of of categories of work. I, I, I write about some of this in, in the book where I think that um, we will really have lots of things to do. And I'm not worried about that. What I am worried about is how we get from here to there. I do think that this process of creative destruction and renewal could be hard. It could particularly be hard on people of color and on low wage workers in the current economy who have many structural barriers um, that they're dealing with right now. But I think at the end of the day, we will be um, benefiting from and enjoying human work. I'm, I'm an optimist um, as a result of this transition from, from the industrial economy to the knowledge economy to, to what I'm calling the, you know, the, uh, the, the talent economy or the, the human work economy. Yeah, you know what what you said at the beginning there reminded me of uh, of of some thoughts by Jamie Bartlett in his book The People versus Tech where he argues that um just struggling with an ethical decision helps us figure out our own ethics and that that that's actually part of how we become ethical beings. And so if you take that away, like if for example you had 
you know, you pr- you programmed into, uh, you know, a, an automated vehicle decisions that it would have to make that would basically minimize harm. So, you know, if it had to, the, the classic trolley problem, if it had to kill one person to save 10, it would always kill the one person. But, you know, for us, we have to sort of struggle with that in order to figure out what our own ethics are. Um, and I think that that's, that's, an interesting perspective of of like so we don't want to we don't want to even if an AI could do it for us that I feel like that's a good example of why we don't want them to do it for us because it helps us us grow. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the kinds of things that you feel are most likely um, you know to be taken over by AI in the very near future or have already been um, and what is the work that will be left that only humans can do. Yeah, I think, well, let me say one thing, which is that I think this distinction between um, AI will be able to do some things and what's left is what humans can do is probably a false dichotomy, that this idea of complementarity, that we will use machines to complement what we're good at and and vice versa is, is really important. That being said, I think that, you know, what we will increasingly see is that the the work that we do, and, you know, I try to make this point that Part of the difference between work and a job is that more and more people are now doing work that is not in the context of a job, right? The gig economy, independent workers. Now, there are lots of, of societal challenges there, right? Like healthcare and, 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 and retirement and those kinds of things. How do you get that when you're not um, working in an organization that traditionally has provided those kind of things? But I think work uh, for us as humans is increasingly going to take us down this path where we may not necessarily be working in a job. So uh, again, uh, in in the context of of uh, how we are how we are doing this work, though, you know, I think that we're going to increasingly be f- be focused on doing um, tasks that rely on our our human traits and capabilities. And so, in the book, I talk about these sort of four archetypes, these four types of of people who are going to be the human workers, you know, and, and it, it's not really a, a hierarchical list, uh, but it's a sort of list that that gives you some sense of how work might be organized. You know, one of them is I call these people helpers. So these are the kinds of people who are going to provide um, support, uh, customer support, engaging in deep interpersonal reactions with other people to solve problems. Um, you know how uh, I the story I tell all the time about the helpers is, you know, right now you can press a button and say, I want to uh, 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 bypass the uh, the automated system and talk to a real person. Well, the real person is the helper, right? Because what you want is you want someone who you're going to interact with. So that's sort of one bucket of, 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 of workers in the future. The bridgers are people who form a, a connection between technology and, and humanity by using, uh, you know, sort of their, their technological skills and their human skills to ensure that uh, the two aspects of the workforce work better together intuitively. So, you know, good managers and supervisors are bridgers, but so are people like help desk staff and IT team leaders. And then integrators are people that use their knowledge and skills to help people in a in a very personal way. So people like you and I, um, educators, psychologists, social workers, things like that. And then the category that everybody wants to talk about is what I call creators, right? Which is that these are people who, um, for whom creativity is very high in what they will do in their work that relies on unique human traits. So artists and musicians, or even people like dancers and athletes, or it could be people who combine very technical skills with their creativity, like video game designers. 
um, and and a video choreographer, things like that. So those those examples, those buckets, if you will, of of workers, I think give us a sense here that I don't think that the work that we will be doing is what's left over after the machines do their work. There's both integration with technology, but also things that are uniquely and solely human as part of that human work experience. So what you alluded to earlier, um, this idea that because we're going through a period of disruption and um, so there's there's big changes happening and that there are going to be a lot of people or there are a lot of people who are suffering, um, you know, from inequality in a sense, you know, I think even within those buckets, like if you think about the creators, you know, it has not been a good couple decades for musicians. <laughs> you know, AI, the ability, you know, or or the ability to stream essentially any music anytime has devastated the income potential for musicians. And it's created this two-tier system where you know, there are some very few who can make a lot of money. Um, and then most musicians make not enough money to support their ability to make music. And so I suppose if you're living in a world where now they also don't have to do maybe there's like a universal basic income or, you know, some other, you know, so they don't have to worry about retirement, they don't have to worry about health care, then they can just, you know, choose to do music because all the other tasks are taken care of. But I wonder if you could you know, address the what what we see happening over the last couple decades, which essentially has been devaluing the output of creatives as uh, the as as the products have become much more easily attained and often free. Yeah, it's absolutely right, and and the issues around around intellectual property, I think, and what has happened in terms of the devaluing of intellectual property. That's for another another podcast, I think, because I think that's a that's a very good point. But again, you know, these these cases where you are blending the highly technical with the creative are examples where there's tremendous growth. Right. So video game developer, I gave I gave a, a speech a few months ago uh, to a group of governors and they were talking about, you know, how do we prepare people for this work of the future? And I say, well, it's a continuous process. Right. You've got to sort of this is not a one and done. First you learn, then you go and work. I said, if we had a time machine and we went back to the 80s. And somebody in the 80s said to you, you know, what's the top jobs now in 2021? And you'd say, well, web developer. They'd say, what the heck is that? Like so much of what the nature of work is has changed in the course of the adult work, work lifetimes of people like myself, that being able to predict what will happen in the future is very difficult. So what we've got to do is prepare people for the sort of ongoing changes that will be required that enhance our human traits and capabilities that make us better at this work. So to, to go back to this, uh, this, this conversation for a moment, you know, I think that we will need to think seriously about how we can invest in the capacities of these creative types for people who we will want as humans to increasingly be entertained by other humans, because uh, we will have so many more options to be quote unquote entertained by technology. It's part of again, uh, you know what we want about being human. We want to interact with our with other humans. We want to benefit from that interaction. And so, I I, I personally think that w whatever word we want to call it, um, the liberal arts are going to see a resurgence in the coming years because I think that this idea that we've got to broadly prepare people for very different, diverse experiences in the future is going to be necessary. So we need people 
who are good critical thinkers and problem solvers and who are creative and who can collaborate, who can do all those things. Because I think that's what the nature of work is going to be. So the, these individuals who are doing this creator, this creative type of, of, of work, in, in my example, um, I think they are going to see that same kind of evolution. And, you know, maybe music will take on new dimensions. Maybe dance will have, we'll, we'll be thinking of wholly new dance uh, art forms. You know, maybe we'll be thinking about choreography in, in very different ways. But I, I do think that you will see more emphasis on that kind of work going forward as we as humans are looking for we we crave that interaction with other humans as as a part of of who we are and what we do look at the example of the last year with covid and how much we missed that as a result of the remote work and remote schooling uh, situations my son had a gift with technology with reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials program. The world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. If you travel, you know how to pull off a perfect getaway. You know after you enroll with your Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card, you get up to $10 back monthly on U.S. rideshare purchases with select providers, like a car to the airport. You know which remote retreats have the best herbal baths and where the Wi-Fi password is rarely used because you're the escape artist. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Terms apply. Purchases must be on card. Visit go.amex slash you know. So one of the other things that the pandemic has highlit or highlighted, I never know how to say that, um, is that is that though those very liberal arts colleges that you suggest are going to be important are also really suffering and that they were basically just just, you know, barely making it through financially. Um, and when all of a sudden enrollment goes down, even just five, 10 percent, you know, some of these great institutions that have been around for 100 years are closing their doors because they can't make it financially. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about what you see as the future of education? Um, because it seems like we are going to go through a period of unprecedented change. Um, and 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 I totally agree with you that I think a liberal arts education is is going to become more and more important. And yet, <laughs> it seems like the, the institutions that provide that education are now very much in crisis. I, I, and, I th and I think both things can, can be true. So look, the trends that you're talking about existed before COVID, right? So there's been this um, ongoing question about the difference between quote unquote education and training, for example. And, you know, f in many ways, I think people have sort of misunderstood this debate. You know, somehow there was this view that education was superior 
or purer than, than training. But the reality is what all of us need to be prepared for is a combination of content-rich knowledge, skills, and abilities and generalizable knowledge, skills, and abilities. And the liberal arts colleges actually do both of those things really well, except we have a brand problem. The brand problem is people don't believe that. They don't believe that if you major in English at a liberal arts school, that your job prospects in the financial services industry are very high. But that's true. The financial services industry really wants English majors. They, they can find lots of people who, who can do business and finance and accounting. What they really want is the people who are broadly trained in how to interact with others, and those are the English majors. And so you see a disproportionate number of English majors in financial services is just one example. So I, I do think that what we have seen in COVID is the declines in higher ed enrollment for some fairly complex factors. First, the biggest declines have been in community colleges. And community colleges historically have always seen their enrollments go up in recessionary environments. This is really the first time since the modern community college movement was developed where that was not the case. The main reason for that is that COVID presented too many barriers for adult learners, right? So COVID presented the added challenge of, I've got to be the homeschooler for my children now. I've got to deal with my my family member who may be sick from COVID. It, it was a bridge too far for those adult learners. So most of what we've seen in terms of the loss of enrollments in, in higher education, particularly in community colleges, but also in some of these schools like you're talking about, is the adult learners. And so it will be interesting to see if we see um, some of those enrollments come back um, in the, the summer and, and certainly next fall as we uh, get more people vaccinated and we move towards a sort of new kind of normal as a result of, of this, um, of, of, the, of the vaccine. But I, I do think that what you will see is increasing pressure on, on, on the, the schools in general and the liberal arts colleges in particular to do a better job of actually articulating what their learners know and can do with those degrees or other credentials that they get. You know, one of the shortcomings that I think that we have in higher education is that we spent too long trying to convince people that we didn't prepare them for jobs, we prepared them for life. And the reality is we're doing both, right? Those things that you and I have been talking about, the critical thinking and the problem solving and the communicating, collaboration, ethics, all those things, those are the same things that we expect our, our workers to do as we do to expect, expect our citizens to do. And yet we haven't done a very good job in higher education in helping to, to make the case for the fact that those skills are the ones that employers actually demand the most. What they want is people who come with this broad capacity to be critical thinkers, to, to be able to solve the problems in real time, to, to, to work in a team. Those are the kinds of things that, yeah, you also have to know something about graphic design or chemistry or, or whatever the field is that you're, that you're studying, but you have to be able to do those things in order to be able to interact with other human workers as part of this human work ecosystem. Yeah. So you talk about how we should rethink, you know, um, and redesign education and training um, and and even the workplace. And I wonder if you could give us a kind of overview of these ideas, especially as some of these tech companies like Google, for example, are taking an active role in terms of training people that might future in the future work for Google. I mean, uh, you know, from what I hear, there's a whole 
you know, industry within the company to create essentially an alternative to going to college. Instead, you would do these modules of of uh, of, of training through Google. Yeah, I think it, so. There will be an interesting, um, a rapidly changing environment. I think for higher education. So, if you look at the as is, uh, what we've historically done is we've used the degree or whatever the other credential might be that you get as a proxy that you know and can do certain things. Um, it's a proxy that employers have used to hire people, um, sometimes to advance people, et cetera. That system is starting to break down in part because, uh, again, my view is a lack of transparency on the part of the, the institutions of higher education on what people know and can do with these credentials. So being clear about those competencies, um, those you know capabilities, whatever you want to call them, I think will be increasingly important on, on the part of the, the higher ed institutions. The employers that are developing these sort of homegrown models saying, well, we're more focused on skills than on the degrees or, or, the, or the credentials. I think there's a mid, mid ground that we can um, uh, join them in, in that I think that for that worker, that employee, they need something, they need to have something that shows they know and they can do things. That's where the credentials come in. So it may be that the higher ed institutions need to do a better job of collaborating with the employers so that uh, there is more of a seamless system of credentials where you get these badges and these certifications through your work and you get a degree from a college or university and then you get some other type of, of credential and maybe it's a license or something like that. But it, it will be much more of an, of an ongoing lifelong process, this virtuous cycle of learning and earning and, and collectively serving others that's part of this human work ecosystem that I think you're going to see. Um, I've seen these examples from Google. LinkedIn's another one um, that is talking about uh, very similar things. But in all of those cases, what they are focused on is helping to um, prepare people for the jobs that they are doing right there. The opportunity for higher education is to help those learner workers prepare for the next job and the next job and the next job. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I I I think that this is a, in part a very difficult problem because a lot of academic institutions really don't want to seem as if they are in the pocket of corporations. You know, the the academic freedom and the sense of like, you know, that that seems to be a value that is is touted within the institution, and so I think it's become it's 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 going to take a little bit of um, real advocacy to overcome that bias. But the other thing that worries me a little bit is actually a lot um, is just the way that we see inequities and especially people of color, um, you know, people who don't have the same educational opportunities, you know, growing up uh, and and that they are being left behind and their jobs are often the ones that are at most at risk. So I wonder if you could talk about. Um, if you have any ideas for how we might address uh, the the gaps and the disparities um, of the people who are going to be most harmed, you know, I think by this disruption um, and that have already suffered a lot of discrimination and bias. Just to underscore your your point, I think COVID has revealed what we've long known, but in a much more um, deeply understood way about differences uh, when it comes to race and, and education. So you know, look, <laughs> COVID's already transformed um, things um, in, in a lot of ways. But, you know, one of the things that we saw from COVID is that 
millions of people had to work remotely. People had to go to school or college remotely. And, um, you know, remote work and remote learning existed before the pandemic, but I think it was considered different or peripheral to real work and learning before the pandemic. And now I think we understand that that is more likely to happen in the future. The problem is the differences by race and income are substantial, right? So work from home differences uh, for people, uh, if you break it down by race and, and income level, are extraordinary, right? More than 50% of the people who have bachelor's degrees in the United States um, were able to work from home in the in the first six to nine months of the pandemic compared to less than 10% of those with high school credentials or less. Well, what we know is that whites have almost twice the level of, of bachelor's degrees as African-Americans, Latinos, and Native Americans. So those gaps are pretty substantial. And then when you add on top of that, that African-Americans, Latinos, uh, Native Americans have been more likely to work in um, the essential occupations, the fields where job loss has been the, the highest, like hospitality, you've underscored the sort of racial difference both in work and in education that has been revealed as, as a result of COVID. So we must, we must in education make um, racial equity a top priority in what we do going forward. And we've, um, you know, always been the engines of, of, of social progress. Um, you know, the civil rights era was really sort of born in higher education in a lot of ways. But I think that putting equity first in all that we do is going to be incredibly important. You know, at the end of the day, you know, my view is that systems of, you know, policies and actions and beliefs have been developed over the course of hundreds of years that have been designed to disadvantage people of color. And so our job in higher education is to help right that ship, to actually create the right kinds of academic and financial and social supports in a sort of three-legged stool to advance racial equity and justice in ways that we really haven't done before. We've made some progress, but we have not turned the corner and actually contributed in a way that I think is disproportionately needed from higher education um, today. So, you know, I think putting equity first is going to be very important. And then, as I said earlier, making sure that what we do focusing on making sure that what people know and can do with the degrees or other credentials that we produce that focus on these human traits and capabilities that are going to be so important in the human e human work ecosystem, to me, that's what's going to be so critical about tilting the balance back towards a more uh, just and equitable society. So I just want to remind our listeners that Jamie Marisotis's uh, book, Human Work in the Age of Smart Machines, is available now at booksellers everywhere. Jamie, I wonder if you could address the future of the service industry. And I think that's the one industry that we, I think, always thought would 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 continue to thrive in the face of smart machines. And yet, with the pandemic, not only do we put our service workers on the front, front lines and, you know, essentially treat them very poorly in terms of, uh, you know, what we expect. Uh, and, and, you know, but at the same time, we recognize that they are, quote unquote, essential um, but I also, you know, see ways in which the pandemic has 
sort of diminish the service part of service. So for example, if you go and you're doing um, outdoor dining, you can order beforehand or you, you know, scan a barcode and then your food just arrives. I mean, I can imagine basically taking the service workers almost entirely out of the equation and still being able to have this experience of dining outside, which I think was unthinkable a year ago. So I wonder if you could just sort of talk a little bit about your thoughts on service in particular and, um, you know, what, what we've learned from the pandemic that can also inform, you know, how we move forward. Yeah, I think this is a case where I do think the service industry and particularly fields like like hospitality, retail, are going to face a, a more cataclysmic set of changes than, than others. And, and um, I think our responsibility um, as a society is going to be to embrace those people and get them into what I call um, adjacent work opportunities. In other words, opportunities that build on the skills that they needed in those jobs, right? The human interaction, you know, you want someone who's uh, waiting on you uh, at the table. You want the person who's, you know, working in the grocery store. You want the individual who's who's working the, the front desk at the hotel um, to be personable, to be someone who can be helpful, to be someone who can, who can actually um, um, help you you know, get whatever it is, whatever the service is that, that you're trying to get. But the reality is that this will be a moment where automation and AI um, will be used to squeeze more and more of those people um, out of jobs. And, you know, I, I think that's pretty obvious. The key is to find the right kind of adjacent learning opportunities so that we make sure that we can turn more of those service workers into the helpers that I was talking about, where people really are um, craving more of that human interaction. They don't want to press a button. They actually want to talk to a real person or getting them into these learning opportunities where they can use their human skills that were necessary in these service jobs, but actually translate into something where, you know, they can be that social worker or that, that um, healthcare aide or what happened or what have you, the person who uh, we will expect them to interact with other humans in a way that we, we think machines can't do. So to me, I think that's going to be really important is we've got to make the case for that and we've got to do so in a, uh, in a, in a pretty urgent way. You know, another example outside of service, by the way, is, you know, we, we keep talking about these examples of where technology is going to transform industries. Transportation is another one because of the self-driving vehicles. And yet before COVID, we were, t we were talking about trying to turn truck drivers into coders. And I kept saying, no, you, a truck driver is not, it's too far of a leap for a truck driver. But, you know, there's big growth in logistics because logistics requires an understanding of how you move goods and services from A to B. It requires human skills. We should be trying to find more opportunities for truck drivers and logistics, not trying to fit square pegs into round holes. So this creative destruction and reinvention that will happen in the labor force as a result of COVID and as a re result of technology, I think is going to require us to find these adjacent work opportunities and to use the education system to prepare people for those adjacent work opportunities and not try to take people down the sort of monolithic path of saying, well, there's this immediate need in, in X small area, but those skills are likely to expire in a very short period of time. Yeah, it seems like one of the key skills that we're going to have to teach, too, is flexibility and adaptability. Um, that, you know, this obviously this idea that you can train for a year and then work in the same job for 10 years is going to go away. 
Yeah, I think, and you know, even you know, for I'm 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 a product of of a liberal arts institution. I feel very well prepared uh, for the changing nature of of my own um, uh, work experience over the course of, of more than thirty years. But um, you know, I think that for most people, they will need to continue to go back and engage in formal learning opportunities. Again, back to what's the responsibility of higher education? We've got to put the learner at the center and figure out how to bring the learning to them. Um, this is going to be hard for us because we are primarily based on physical campuses. We, you know, we have focused on a sort of 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 in person environment where maybe we're going to need to be more creative about hybrid learning opportunities, having people come and spend some time with us, but being able to use technology in other ways because they they are going to need to continue to learn over the course of their working lifetimes, uh, most of the, the workers that we'll see going forward. But we in higher education can't assume that they're all going to come and drive their car and sit in our classrooms and learn in the way that they've always done for the last 150 years. Well, that makes me a little less grumpy about having to take a bunch of um, remote education training courses this summer. <laughs> Did you even know what Zoom was before before COVID? Because I did not. Um, I had heard of it, and now it is a you know, it is a it is now eight to ten hours of my day every day. So yeah, I, I'm, I've I'm learned a, some things. I'm a master at the breakout rooms. Right, <laughs> Jamie. Thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Delighted to be with you. So that's it for another episode. That was part three of a four-part series on artificial intelligence and our future. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. In the next episode, and the episode following, as a matter of fact, we're going to be talking to fiction writers who imagine a future 100 years or so into the future. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of this show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyle Rahala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stephen Meyer Awold, Charles Blyle, and Dale LeMaster. Without you, this show would simply not happen. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next time. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.